Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. I'm Brian Reardon, and with me as always is Marianne Steiner, my co-host. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing good today. So for this episode, we're going to, again, as we've done for the last several, um, do another issue related to COVID-19 and the pandemic. And for this um, conversation, we're going to talk to a couple of folks around the pandemic and care for older persons. And uh, I know, Marianne, in the last couple of episodes, you've referenced the fact that as we've all been working from home here, you've actually had your mother living with you. So I think this is a topic that you've got some personal experience with. I'm really interested, um, well, professionally, because this has become such a big issue during the pandemic. But yeah, you know, I mean, I turn the big seven zero in a few weeks. So I look at this from a personal perspective. And I also am very interested in in my mom's situation. She's 93 and she's living with me. And I read about the options that Ruth spells out in her article, and I wish they were available in more places. Um, options seem pretty limited sometimes, and the, especially the aging from home options aren't as available as you would think, you would hope. So I'm, I'm very eager for this conversation. Yeah, and as Marianne mentioned, we our first guest is Ruth Katz. She is Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Advocacy for Leading Age. That's a nonprofit in Washington that's focused on education, advocacy, and applied research for older adults. Ruthie, we're also the author in the current issue of Health Progress of Creating a Good Country to Grow Old In. Yep, thanks, Brian. Yeah, I'm glad to be with you guys today. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that article, unfortunately, I think it may be a little late for Marianne's mother. But hopefully, for for the coming generations, we'll be able to make some changes. Well, I hope you'll have it ready by the time I'm there. Um, before we talk about some of the ideas, and also I really want to talk about the little stories and anecdotes in your article, would you just um, explain to our listeners what leading age is mm-hmm. and what your primary focus is? Sure. Leading age is a membership association of Providers. They are mission driven providers of aging services. And one of the unique things about Leading Age is we are not a quote nursing home association or a uh, home health association. We are both of those things, but we like to say we represent the whole continuum of aging services. So we represent, um, of course, nursing homes, but also assisted living, memory units, uh, home health providers, hospice care providers, home and community-based services providers, uh, even supports for caregivers, adult day, uh, life plan communities, continuing care retirement communities. So we like to think about it from the perspective of the person, and a person who is using aging services is not a nursing home person. Mm-hmm. They're a person who might start with a little home care and, and move on. So, so um, your the title for your article, "Creating a Good Country to Grow Old In," is you know a take on the movie. Uh, what, what was the title? No Country for Old oh, Men? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, anyway, the title suggests that this may not be a great country to go, grow old in. And I think of some friends I have in Germany or in other parts of the world where 
Um, we don't compare well. Would you talk a little bit about that? What do you see the big obstacles are in the United States? Yeah, I I think I would say the biggest one is, and and we fall into this in, I'll use the words long-term care or long-term services and supports or aging services almost interchangeably. But the the thing we fall into sometimes is we'll talk about the long-term care system Mm -hmm. the way we might talk about the healthcare system. But the fact of the matter is there is no system. It is is not an orderly system. what happens next. It's much more of a this this sprang up and then this sprang up and this evolved because there there we really don't have much in the way of an of an organized system. So often um people will come to those of us who are working in aging services and say, you know, oh, I'm, I'm glad I know you and, uh, you know, I need some help from my mom now. Uh, who do I call? How do I get Medicare to pay for this? And um, surprise, we don't have a system. Medicare doesn't pay for this. So I think one of the biggest obstacles is the lack of a system. Obviously, the lack of a system means the lack of financing. Um, and I guess one of the other big obstacles is... I think ageism. So a lot of people don't want to think about aging services or planning for that that potentiality in their own life because there's a, a an emotional, a psychological thing about I don't want to get old. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I I don't want to. I just want to be healthy. I want to run a marathon. I want to cross over the finish line, and then I'm going to die. Okay, good luck with that, but that's probably not going to work out that way. Do you do you see the um, forming of a system as a government project, or do you see it uh, arising from different centers? Do you see it as an entrepreneurial thing? It's probably a little bit of both, but I think that government has a responsibility to provide the leadership here. Uh, we spend – the fact that we don't have a system, don't let that make us think we aren't spending a lot of a lot of public money on it because what we have is Medicaid. Medicaid is a system that was designed and still is the um, health insurance system for low-income people in our country. And it was sort of tweaked and twisted and retrofitted to pay for long-term care. And we spend more public money than most countries in the rest of the world through Medicaid, yet still we don't have a system. So I think it is I think we should we should probably be smarter about the way we organize our public system but I do think that there's a public role now can private supports can people self-funding their care a tiny little bit of long-term care insurance can that be part of it I think yes that there's there's a role for both and are we at a moment Ruth you in your article mention uh, or use an, a 9/11 analogy you know after the twin towers came down that there was um a lot of, you know, momentum and changing how we uh, secure, you know, ourselves from attacks in the future with this pandemic. And I looked up this morning on on the CDC website that I was, I think we've seen this reported, but it's still shocking that 80% of COVID deaths have been among those who are 65 or older. And so there is sort of this moment with this pandemic and the disproportionate impact it's had on older Americans. Mm -hmm. Does that give you, I guess, um, 
some hope that maybe some major policy changes, particularly around financing, um, might occur in this moment? <laughs> it's funny listening to you. I'm thinking, just go ahead, unzip my chest and pull my heart out. Why don't you? <laughs> like it's, that's a very, it's a really sad thing. It is. You it, just it really said. is. You know yeah. the way you just told that. But does it give me hope? I like the I like the optimism of your question, and in fact, it does. Um, it. I think that what's been going on with COVID has exposed what I always think of as a soft underbelly of aging services in this country. So I think we all like to go through our life thinking, well, I don't want to think about getting old, but in, in case I need any help. It'll all be there for me. And I think what we're kind of seeing now is, you know, decades of underfunding and and lack of paying attention to these places has exposed some real challenges and real flaws. And yes, it's if we if we don't do it, who will? Well, speaking of hope. So, yeah, I think that there is an opportunity. Yeah. Speaking of hope, I think you are such a good writer. I just loved reading your article and working with you on it. Um, but my, I think my favorite sentence in the whole article is so much willingness to still grab joy where we can find it. And you tell some wonderful stories. Uh, I loved the the virtual Seder. I loved a lot of the examples. Would you talk about some of those? Um, sure. And, you know, it's funny. They, I love, I love, love, love that people have access to, to YouTube, to phones, to make videos, to just, you know, a little bit of production help, and, and you can make a kind of cool video. And so you see um, people are constantly sending these, and there's so much hope in them. You know, they're, they're often uh, – there was one I just saw recently from a place called the Mary Wade Home, which is a, a one – one site, a single site nursing home. Uh, I forget. It's it's fewer than two hundred people. It's a you know not a not a huge sprawling corporate place. It's a it's a home, and there's a lady named Grace, and this is a a video that was made about Grace. She's a hundred and I want to say a hundred and two or something, and she's talking about that she had COVID and all the things that she survived in her life. And then at the end, she says, you know, the reason that I decided to do this interview with you is because we haven't had our hair salon in the nursing home open since March. And I wanted to get my hair done. And I knew that the only way <laughs> that I could, that I was going to get it done is if I said yes. And, and then her very last line is, and when I die, I want everyone to know this. Call my hairdresser first. <laughs> Are there things that we need to do uh, as an industry to make some meaningful change, particularly, you know, post-pandemic when we get to that point? So you're not thinking, Brian, then of the of the midterm, like things like yeah, I think big. I mean, PPE. go yeah. If, if you had you your wish, here. yeah. If you had your wish, yeah. Not not the sort of day in and day out stuff, but just structural changes that you think. Um, we need to be thinking about? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think we need to, uh, one of the things that, that has become clear to me in the pandemic is that the best advocates are the people who are on the ground providing services. And I don't, I'm, I'm not differentiating between the front lines and the management and administrative staff. I mean, people who are engaged in providing services every day know what that looks like. And it is our responsibility to make sure that uh, other people understand what is needed and what this looks like. Um, I think I'll, I'll go into a little more into kind of p 
bigger policy issues that we need to carry. We have done a lot um, like never before. It's so funny because our members, like the people you're describing too, they are the, the probably the busiest they've ever been in their whole careers right now fighting fighting COVID. Right. Yet we've we've had uh, 60, 70 meetings at this point with members of leading age who who some of them are joint members with you guys who come with us on Zoom calls, on video meetings with members of Congress. Where they find the time, I do not know. But one visit like that compared to an inside the beltway person in their right. in their best suit and their pearls going up to the hill, <laughs> which one do you think is more effective in, in convincing lawmakers? So what, what, are, what messages are they delivering? What are they telling our members of Congress on those calls? Okay. So first of all, that we need to be thinking about the future of uh, that we do need a system, that we do need financing, um, that we um, down at the kind of at a at a more drill down level, Medicaid is a is a great example. During the pandemic, we've had a, a bump up during the public health emergency. We've had a bump up in the amount of money that the federal government will pay to match every dollar that a state puts up. So a state normally gets a, whatever they get on their Medicaid match rate. But during the pandemic, they get a bump up of that rate. We need to continue that. And this is, I'm talking crazy talk here because we all know that states are not in great economic shape right now. And a thing that is going to suffer is Medicaid. Yeah, we're- uh, and that's going to be rough for yeah. health care services. It's going to be rough for long-term care. We need to keep Medicaid healthy and well-funded, and it's got to be a priority for our country. I think we need to think um, we need to stop doing the the lip service to home and community-based services and actually be be real about that. So you sort of when you when you when you're in these long-term care financing reform conversations, at least the ones I've been in for the last you know, forever, decades, the, it's always, um, you know, we need to be thinking about long-term care. We need a system, blah, 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 dot, dot, dot. Oh, yeah, and home and community-based services. And they need to get more central. That needs to be a much more central focus. We need to get real about that. So what Marianne described doing with her mom, uh, something like 80 85% of the long-term care services that people are getting in this country are a situation just like that, a daughter, a spouse, a niece, a nephew, sometimes a neighbor, someone from your church. We call it informal care. It's not free. There's no money changing hands, but I'm, I'm sure Marianne can tell us it's not free. And things like adult day supports, um, whether they're provided on site or or by telehealth at this point in time, we're learning. Um, respite services, all of those are essential to keeping keeping Marianne and all the other informal caregivers um, able to to keep doing what they do. They do it out of love, and they do it because they want to do it, but they need to be supported. So I think a a reform system. Part of the message is 
a reform system has to really be meaningful in home and community-based care. Yeah, and we unfortunately don't have enough time to go through a lot of the suggestions you have in your article. So again, I would encourage those listening to, to check out your article. Uh, as we wrap up um, your part of this conversation, I'm going to let Marianne uh, have the final word or last question to you, Ruth. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's a question. I, I want to thank you for having having joined us for this. I think that it's um, it makes me happy that there are people like you who are both optimistic um, about what can happen and very practical practical about how it needs to happen and are are continuing to push because i think um, when when you visit someone you love in a in a long-term care place or when you watch your parent or you know it's um, it's really obvious that there are gaping gaping holes in the system so we need mm-hmm. leaders like you to keep it moving thanks ruth Oh, thank you. Thank you, Marianne and Brian. Ruth, thank you so much. It was good talking to you again. That was Ruth Katz. She is Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Advocacy for Leading Age. Our next guest on the phone with us is Justin Hinker. He is the administrator of Avero Prince of Peace Retirement Community in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Hi, Justin. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being with us. So I guess to start off with, and again, this uh, episode is on the pandemic and care for older people. And I think to start with, um, tell us a little bit about Avera Prince of Peace Retirement Committee. Uh, maybe, you know, explain why it may be a little different from other long-term care facilities. Sure. We are a, a campus with a, a full continuum of care. We have independent living apartments, assisted living, skilled nursing, all under our license. Um, we really are fortunate. Our skilled nursing facility was built in 2016, so we're an almost brand new facility, and it does include a, a Main Street area. And with that, all of our neighborhoods have private rooms in them. Part of our Skilled nursing license also includes a uh, transitional care unit, and that occupies our old skilled nursing space, and that is to take care of individuals who um, have a tough time being placed from our acute care hospitals. Um, The hospitals maybe have a tough time finding a discharge location because those individuals don't have a, maybe don't have a pay source, they don't have a guardian, um, they have higher acuity levels than what a typical nursing facility can take. Um, So that's what's occupying some of our old nursing facility space. So let me ask you, um, we, in the last, our last guest, we talked about the, the huge impact that the pandemic has had on those who are older. Uh, what's been your experience there at Avera? Uh, it's been uh, completely and totally different than anything that we've ever experienced. You know, I, um, prior to this, you know, we might have had some times where um, influenza might have um, shut down or you know, not even really shut down, but um, limited visitors for a period of time. Um, but this has completely changed everything that we've ever known. And um, to close the facility, I think initially I was thinking, you know, it might be a little bit of a short-term thing. But now we've been closed since March 11th, so, you know, almost five months or a little over five months now. So um, completely different than anything that we ever experienced. So, Justin, I, I remember the part in your article when you talked about the very first case and how you thought it was going to be an outlier, and and it just kept growing and, and, and growing. And um, I, was, I was touched by how much that affected you and your staff and how quickly you had to respond to what you just talked about, you know, closing things down and communicating things. So the, the 
gist of your article has a whole lot to do with the importance of communication and how you all managed that. And I, I'd really like you to talk more about that. Sure. I think, as I, I mentioned in the article, um, we were not prepared for the number of calls that we received or emails. I mean, any, any kind of communication, for that matter, that we received when we had our first positive case. And unfortunately for us, I, we were the first facility in our area, for sure, I think, or maybe even in the state. And I, and I think we're, you know, we're near Minnesota and Iowa and mm -hmm. uh, Nebraska. And I, I think we were one of the first that has a, had a positive uh, COVID-19 case. So from that standpoint, it made it really difficult because we were the first. I think if that happened now, things would be quite a bit different. Um, but you know, in this time when people are very easily able to communicate and send messages or, you know, pick up their cell phone and call, um, word spread really quickly. And family members, friends, whomever that happened to be, they were, they were calling at a pace that we could not respond quickly enough to. Uh, I think I remember at that time our, our social worker coming to me saying that she had uh, so many voicemails and emails that she wasn't able to respond to any of them. She didn't even really know where to start. Mm -hmm. And so um, at that point, we we made a decision to um, work with our marketing team and our communications team. And I, I was talking to them, and I said, we really need to get a message out to our families. We just can't keep up with the number of calls and emails and everything that's coming in. And I, and I understand that, too, because there was that, and especially at that time, there was concern from our families and friends, you know. So um, our marketing and communications team helped us to get that message out um, through social media. You know, we did have at that time some families were upset that they learned mm. of the first positive through social media, but we just, we needed to get ahead of that and we needed to to get a message out and word was already spreading and I wanted to get that message out instead of having, you know, rumors spreading around. So that, it was it was difficult at that time, and um, and again, us being the first, that, that made it increasingly difficult. I think one of the things that made your article special was about how frank you were about the things that were happening and how you really moved quickly to learn from the mistakes and the successes that you had. Um, and I think one of the big successes you had was were your town hall meetings. Um, so you want to describe those? Sure. Yeah. Um, if, if things happen now, it, it would be a lot different. But, um, you know, after we had that um, first positive case and um, we I was really kind of pushing on our our marketing communications team to help us out with something and and they came up with what we called our, our virtual town hall meetings and those were an opportunity for families or friends or whomever anyone could call in and there was a a number that they could call into and listen to us live um, so a message prior to that a message went out to all families uh, asking them to submit questions and we took all those questions, um, and I, I had those in advance, obviously, so we were able to um, kind of formulate our response um, before that. But our medic we have two medical directors on our campus, and so uh, our two medical directors and myself 
um, answered all those questions in what we called a, a town hall format. So again, families or friends or whomever, residents, actually some of our tenants on campus too were able to call in. Um, so they were able to listen to that live. And so I would just read the question and then we would give the answer. And if it was medical related, our medical directors answered it. If it was something that was more facility specific, then I answered those questions. So it wasn't interactive and the families could ask questions on the spot, but it was definitely a great way for us to be able to deliver a consistent message to our families, mm -hmm. our residents, our friends. Um, during the first call that we had, we had over 130 callers, and we had about 35 questions that we answered during that time. So, again, it was really a great way for us to be able to answer those questions so everybody could hear them at the same time yeah. and for us to be able to deliver a consistent message. What kind of feedback did our families um, positive about that experience, or were they wish there was more that you could do? Um, just curious how those went as far as reaction from loved ones of your, your residents. It was um, overwhelmingly positive, and I, I part of that was I think they appreciated hearing. I think we could have communicated probably by letter or you know by email or whatever that happened to be, but I think they appreciated being able to hear uh, our voices on that, and I think especially being able to hear from our medical directors and the expertise that they were able to provide, I think it lended a little extra um, added expertise from that standpoint. And so some of the things that maybe I was communicating and we were telling families even one-on-one, -on -one, it was helpful to have the, the medical directors come on and be able to, to reinforce it and to be able to use some medical background in order to help us out with that. So the response was, I would say, overwhelmingly um, very positive. Um, you know, as we watched, we were able to see the numbers. Um, they stayed pretty solid around 80 to 100 um, over the whole time that we did it. The other thing, you know, you mentioned that you haven't had, your residents are not able to have visitors uh, during this time. And I think an iconic image that we've all seen is of people uh, with their face or their hand against a window looking at you know, a resident inside of a facility. We've seen that multiple times. Um, in your article, you actually mentioned that you had to put an end to that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then what did, how are you facilitating a connection between your residents and their family? Sure, absolutely. You know, I, I, certainly I think family members were at that time for sure looking for any way that they could convene and come in and communicate with their with their loved ones. Um, we did have to stop the window visits because we had instances where windows were being opened, and then that had the potential of exposure during those visits. So we did, I, I think we probably, you know, there are probably times where right now we actually have visits going on, um, but we're really trying to monitor that the windows are closed, and we've asked our staff to do that. Um, window being closed is fine, but that wasn't always happening. Um, so what we decided to do was to try something a little bit different, and we actually built a booth that's down on our main street. Um, it's just inside our front door, and we actually have two of them now, but at the time, um, you know, we started with one um, where uh, we, we set up visits and we used Sign Up Genius in order to do that, but uh, families or friends or whomever are able to go in and sign up for a half-hour visit, and we bring the residents down, and they are able to visit in what we call it, you know, it's a visit booth, but we have plexiglass in the middle, and then we have microphones um, and headphones that they're able to communicate back and forth. And so we actually have two of those booths now that they're able to do that. And we also now, or in a, at a kind of about the same time too, um, when the weather became nicer, we also started doing outdoor visits. Oh, yeah. Where we have 
um, social distancing. And so um, the resident actually, we give them the choice if they want to choose to do an indoor or an outdoor visit. Um, and if the weather happens to be bad, if it's raining or if the weather's inclement in any way, they can just move in and do an indoor visit at that time. So I think Avera does so many things well in terms of distance and how you um, take good care of the people in your community. But I was really struck by how well the um, the small facility within a large system system were balancing the strengths and the um, and the trust of you know the communication. So I, I'd like to know more about how you all worked that out. How the health system could support you with um, greater means and more strength and how they understood what you needed and what support you wanted but what support you didn't want. Um, did that did that just happen naturally because you guys already have done this sort of thing or was that something you really had to hammer out along the way? You know, I think I mentioned before our our marketing and communications team was a huge help to us when we needed to communicate out to our families and residents. Um, we've got support from uh, our infection control specialists at the Avera Health level. Um, if we have a question, we can submit it. We have a, what's called a, a COVID response team, and they've got an email that we're able to, if, if we have a question or whatever that is, we can just um, submit that, and then an expert, uh, and if they don't know the answer, I don't know exactly who sits on this, but they'll find an expert that provides us with a response. Um, you know, we've got a whole web page that's dedicated to COVID-19, and that's got resources for our staff. Mm -hmm. We have an employee health team that gives us guidance for, for our staff when they have issues with COVID-19. And I just think all of these things, um, all of the resources that we have are so beneficial and helpful to us, and we don't have to spend time, you know, recreating you know, policies and procedures or trying to research things by ourselves, um, it's, it's a lot easier to be able to just submit a question to the, to the response team. And, and I, you know, they might, have the, they might have to do a little research too, but it's, again, those resources that we're able to lean on, and then we have more time to be able to, um, you know, do the things that we need to do on our campus. So, right. again, I, I just really can't say enough about the support of our larger system um, to our facility. It's really made our job a lot easier. Yeah. So, Justin, as we uh, wrap up the conversation, I guess the, the last question I'd have for you is going forward, are there some key things you've learned um, over these last several months that are going to change or have changed how you operate? Uh, maybe it's how care is delivered through telehealth, things of that ma matter. I mean, there's some positives. Uh, you shared a lot of uh, examples of how you, you know, adjust in real time to meet the needs of your residents. But are there things you learn from that that you think will change how you, you operate going forward? Oh, certainly. I think, um, you know, we're constantly trying to figure out different and maybe potentially better ways that, to respond to issues like this. Um, I've you know, one of the things that's come out of this is we've um, developed, um, and it isn't quite in place yet, but we're working to develop a mass communication tool. Um, and it's similar to what our schools use, um, you know, to let people or to let 
um, families and and students know that maybe school is going to be called off. So I'm hoping that down the road with this mass communication tool that we'll be able to very quickly either send an email, a voicemail, or a text to families. And you had asked a little bit about telehealth. Thankfully, we, prior to the pandemic, we had telehealth in place. We, we have, um, Avera has what's called our eCare. Mm-hmm. And we've been, we've been using eCare for a number of years. And that gives us the ability, we're able to tap into, uh, I would say it's called a, a hub where there's experts that we can can lean on for advice when it comes to taking care of our residents. And so typically what we do is we'll um, uh, use a phone call to um, take, you know, take care of our residents, you know, to use orders and those kinds of things if we need that from a physician. Um, if that doesn't work, we're able to, to link into on an iPad, and then the provider can look at the resident through the iPad. So I think going forward, uh, we'll have a better or we'll be more equipped and, and better, you know, better equipped to be able to care for our residents as we uh, move forward if there is something else that happens. Yeah, and it seems a, a lot of what you, you share in your article is really around uh, good communication, communicating better uh, with those that are, you know, loved ones of, of your residents. So I, as a, somebody who's in communications, I really appreciated the article. And that article was entitled The Pandemic and Lessons to Share in Long-Term Care. Uh, the author was Justin Hinker. He's the administrator of Avera Prince of Peace Retirement in South Dakota. Justin, thanks for taking some time out this morning to chat with Marianne and I. And uh, good luck with, with everything you're doing there and uh, hang in there. Thanks so much for having me. And that's another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. Uh, again, I'm your host, Brian Reardon. And with me, as always, was Marianne Steiner. Marianne, appreciated uh having you along for this conversation. It was a really good conversation. Yeah, important topic. Um, And again, we always uh, appreciate the good work of Clayton Studios in St. Louis to help us uh, put these episodes together. And, And so until next time, we'll talk to you.